0: My name is Grace Marie. I'm the worship arts director here, and I'm so glad to be able to share this word that God has put on my heart this morning uh, for this time and this season and this place, and so I'm excited to be here. Uh, we have been in this series, Image Bearers, the past couple of weeks, and we've laid a really strong foundation about God being the ruler and the king over everything and also that we are his creation that we get to bear His image, His representation. And so, this morning we're gonna continue that series and uh, take the next step. And I'll just say this, that last week Chad did say, at some point in his message, I threw you guys right in, the deep end, right from the beginning. And then he asked midway through if anybody needed a floaty. Okay, so I'm not gonna do that to you, okay? We're just gonna, gonna wade into the water together. Is anybody here ready to wade? We're going to wade into the water, but then we will find ourselves in the deep end because there's some serious implications about some of the things that we have to talk about today if we truly believe that God has created humanity to bear his image. So first things first, as we wade into this topic, Peter Pan has been a story, a children's story that's been retold over and over again in all kinds of different ways. There's been movies, there's been plays, there's been all kinds of things, but I would say the best retelling of Peter Pan is the movie Hook. Anybody else? Oh yeah. This movie came to us as a classic in 1991, and our lives have never been the same. And if you don't have plans tonight, you now know what your plans are, make sure to watch Hook. But if you've never seen the movie, the basic gist of this story of Peter Pan is that Peter Pan leaves Neverland, so he grows up, he becomes an adult, he comes to the real world, and then he, he gets a job, he gets a wife, he gets a couple kids, and life's just really wearing and tearing on him. You know, you could see it kind of all over his face. And what happens is, His two kids were kidnapped by none other than Captain Hook. So he has to go back to Neverland to rescue his kids. But the problem is when he gets to Neverland, nobody recognizes him. His previous group of friends called the Lost Boys don't see him as Peter Pan anymore. And so they actually fight against him and they're coming at him, they're fighting him. You're not paying, you're not paying the man if you've seen the movie, you know. And they just really are against him, treat him like an enemy. And he's saying, no, I'm, I'm one of you. I'm, I'm Peter, I'm Peter. And there's this amazing moment in this movie where the youngest lost boy gets down right in Peter Pan's face. He gets down, he looks him in the face, he makes eye contact with him. He takes his glasses off of him. And then he begins to maneuver his face around to try to make the wrinkles go away. And he's making all these marks all over his face. And finally, he forces his face into a little smile. And the little boy says something so powerful. He says, oh, there you are, Peter. There you are, Peter. And all of a sudden, everyone embraces him and they begin to celebrate together. You see, something powerful happens in a moment when we choose to see somebody. When we choose to see somebody, and there's something powerful that happens to the other person when someone feels seen, when someone realizes, oh, I'm one of them, or we accept someone as one of us, that they're a real person behind the struggle and the pain. When we slow down and we make eye contact with another human being, that's when we begin to realize there's much more to this person than just the story we've heard. See, we've been in this series, like I said, for two weeks, and so this week as we navigate these things about what it means to be an image bearer, to be the visible representation of the invisible God, we step into this topic realizing that sin and brokenness has has ruined the world in the sense that we don't perfectly reflect this image. And other people aren't perfectly reflecting that image, of course, but if it's true that the story of the Bible is a calling us back to what was originally intended, then we have to navigate these things and long for people to live in the fullness and wholeness of what it means to be a human. And this is true for us individually, and it's true for every human being that we've been created by God with this purpose. So simply this morning, I want us to ask this question. I want us to ask this question together. How can we treat other people as image bearers of God, what they were created and designed to do? How can we treat other people as image bearers, what they were created and designed to do? 1 John 4, 11 through 12 says this, you can read along with me. Dear friends, since God loved us that much, we surely ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. The love of God can be brought to full expression in how we love people and how we love each other as the collective church. So here's the question this morning. When we look at people, when they see us, when they see you, are you bearing the expression of God's love to them? Are you reflecting his image? And I believe the only way that people can see the expression of love from us, the only way they can see that is if we choose to see them. If we choose to take the time to see them and no one models us better than Jesus himself. And so we're gonna jump right into a story in Luke 19. If you have your Bible, you can turn there with us or you can follow along on the screen, but we're gonna read through a story that I'm assume, I assume a lot of you know, but we'll start at the top of the story of Jesus, chapter 19, one through four. It says this, Jesus entered Jericho and made his way through the town. There was a man there named Zacchaeus, He was the chief tax collector in the region, and he had become very rich. He tried to get a look at Jesus, but he was too short to see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, and he climbed a sycamore fig tree beside the road, for Jesus was going to pass that way. Now, you know me. First things first, we're going to have to sing the song. You know, Some of y'all know, you're like, she's going to sing the song. And just attest to know who grew up in children's church. I need to know, so I need y'all to join me if you know the song about Zacchaeus. If you don't, this is your chance to learn. You get some good theology from kids' songs. Here we go. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Savior he wanted to see. And as that Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree. And he said, Zacchaeus, you come down. For I'm going to your house today. Oh, I am so impressed. The nine o'clock did not do good, and I was like, I'm gonna let y'all know, is gonna do better than you, and you can't do anything about it now. I knew it was gonna be true. Yes, I love that song. Songs teach us great theology. But in this story, and also from this song, but in this story from Scripture, we learn two very important things about Zacchaeus right from those first few verses. First of all, we learned that he is the chief tax collector. Let me give you some backstory about what that means in this day and time. Tax collectors were despised by their fellow Jews. They were an ever-present symbol of foreign oppression. They used cruel methods to become wealthy at the expense of other people. And they worked in close association with the Romans. They found sneaky ways to get wealthy off of others and essentially People felt trapped by them and taken advantage of. So for this reason, tax collectors were treated as the lowest class of sinners. Socially, they were rejected. Politically, they were regarded as traitors. And religiously, they were excommunicated. And here is Zacchaeus in this story mentioned as the chief tax collector of this region. And it says he had become very wealthy, implying off of these other people's backs and exploitation. All in all, this guy had a very, very bad reputation. He was an outcast, he was hated. Chief tax collector, the second thing we learn about this passage is obvious, that he was short. Now some people believe One of the reasons it's mentioned is because he was probably mocked and made fun of growing up, and this is his chance to take his career and his job and get back at other people who made fun of him. That may be true. We don't know for sure. However, we do know the main reason it's implied that he's short is simply because he physically could not see over the crowd. He physically could not see over the crowd, and so he decided, I need to put myself in the path of Jesus, so I'm gonna have to run ahead, I'm gonna have to get there, and I'm gonna have to do whatever I can, so he climbed a tree in order to be able to put himself in the path of Jesus, because he wanted to see him. He would do whatever it took. Now, there's not very many people that I would fight a crowd for to see, okay? I'm just like not that impressed by people. I'm like, I'm not trying to do that. However, about 10 years ago, I was in New York City, and I found out that my all-time favorite golden girl, Betty White, was in town, okay? So I was like, oh, we're going to get up early. We're going to fight the crowd. We're going to do all the things. So I did that. It was was freezing. It was November. So I had to bundle up. You have to get there really early. She was going to be on one of the morning shows. And so, you know, I'm with my family, and we're going over the crowd, and we're getting there, and I jump over a security stanchion to get as close as I possibly could. And I will say, that day, I saw Betty White. Betty White did not see me, okay? (laughs) Betty White did not see me, but I didn't care. I was like, hey, at least I got to lay eyes on one of my heroes. You see, for, for Zacchaeus, we don't know everything that was going on or the reason why he was so interested to get his eyes on Jesus, but he was gonna do whatever it took to get his eyes on Jesus and put himself in his path. He didn't wanna miss him. And the amazing thing is Jesus didn't, Miss Zacchaeus. It goes on in the story and it says this in verse five. When Jesus came by, he looked up at Zacchaeus and he called him by name. Zacchaeus, he said, quick, come down. I must be a guest in your home today. You see, several significant things are happening in this story, in this, just this one verse. Jesus was on the path. He was going through this town. There's this crowd there. Everyone wants Jesus' attention. Everyone wants to know what he's gonna do and what he's gonna say, and he actually stopped to connect with someone in a tree. He looked up at Zacchaeus. The meaning behind this is that he actually looked at him to see him, not a casual glance. He made eye contact, a personal connection with the social outcast of his day. The first way we can learn to treat others as image bearers means seeing someone in a way that invites connection. We've gotta see people, we gotta look at people, we gotta make eye contact with people and see people in a way that's actually gonna invite connection. There's been lots of research that suggests that making eye contact and having a direct gaze with someone is associated with interest, trustworthiness, and automatically can connect you with another person. There's uh, been some very odd studies that that have been done also called eye gazing experiments, where they will take strangers off the street Put them in a room. It's quiet. They don't know each other's name. They know nothing about each other, and they want them to make eye contact uninterrupted for ten minutes. This sounds uncomfortable, right? I actually thought about. I think we should try this this morning. We're going to do one minute of uninterrupted eye contact with a neighbor nearby. But then I thought some of y'all would be trying to make some love connections, and you can do that on your own time. We're not doing that in the middle of the message. We're not doing that in the middle of the message. But. They say that actually making eye contact with someone actually establishes a true connection because someone feels seen and the person seeing can actually be invited into a reality about that person they didn't know before. In the 1980s there was a horrible war going on in Afghanistan and it was the country was being war torn and bombs were being dropped and so thousands were actually fleeing to the Pakistan border, and the world was pretty disconnected to what was actually going on in Afghanistan at the time. And so, National Geographic decided to send a photojournalist to uh, Afghanistan to the refugee camps to actually capture what was going on. And so, they send Steve McCurry. He goes to uh, these refugee camps along the border in Afghanistan and begins to just take pictures. And he took this picture and I'm sure many of you have seen it, it's called The Afghan Girl. And I want you just to look at this picture for a moment. Two piercing green eyes and a penetrating stare that stopped the world in its tracks. As this picture called Afghan Girl came to us in 1985, it became immortalized on the cover of the National Geographic magazine, jolting governments and society to acknowledge the human price of the conflict in Afghanistan. It was no longer an over there issue. It was a human issue. And the world finally made eye contact with this girl. The watching world got involved because of what they saw. The watching world actually got involved because of what they saw. And the interesting about, thing about this story is that no one ever knew her name. The picture ends up on National Geographic and no one knew her name. And actually, years later, 17 years later, in 2002, the photojournalist decides, I'm gonna go back to Afghanistan. I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna try to find this girl. Did she live? Did she die? Did she make it out of the country? And so they go and they do, uh, they basically take the, the photo of her on the cover and they try to find her. And lots of people came forth trying to say that's this who she was. But they ended up finding her and they, they confirmed it with optic uh, software to identify that it was actually her. And they ended up taking this picture of the same girl holding her own photo in 2002. The power of this picture actually changed a situation. It connected people. Her name was Sharbat Gula, and in looking at this picture, we recognized the hardships that she had been through, and her reality was brought to light when people looked into her eyes. You see, when we choose to see someone, we're connecting with their humanity. When we choose to see someone, we're we're connecting with their humanity and we're also connecting with our own humanity. God has designed us to be in relationship and to be connected with each other. And so when we turn a blind eye to pain or to suffering or to struggle or to whatever someone's story is, when we avoid making eye contact with people, we're actually denying the very things God has made us to do and be as his image bearers and as his reflection and in his expression to the world. Too often we don't wanna face the pain of someone's story or understand all the reasons maybe why they're going through what they're going through or we don't understand their particular struggle or sin struggle in their life and so we end up avoiding it. We see a problem that needs to be dealt with instead of a person that needs to be loved. But Jesus sets a different example in this passage for us. He took the time to look, he took the time to see, He took the time to make eye contact, looking past his reputation and dignifying his personhood. Looking past his reputation and dignifying his personhood. And not only did he see him, he also did something incredibly powerful. He called him by his name, Zacchaeus. Now we all know that names carry significant meaning and I can give illustration after illustration, but we, we know this to be true. Names carry significant meaning. And in this day and time, names carried incredible significance for people. And so the fact that Jesus actually says his name, it probably stopped people in their tracks because Zacchaeus actually means pure and innocent. They do not teach you that in the children's song. I'm like, we need to write a new verse. Pure and innocent. So I want you to just imagine this scene with me. Here we have Jesus stopping along the road in a crowd of people, looking up and making eye contact with an absolute reject of society that everyone hated, everyone knew was a cheater, the one who's making everyone else's life miserable by burdening them and exploiting them, and he calls him by his actual name, meaning pure and innocent. The second way to treat people as image bearers is speaking to someone in a way that brings significance to them. Speaking to someone in a way that brings significance. It's like Jesus sees him and says, oh, there you are, Zacchaeus, there you are. One made to be pure, one created by God as innocent, he didn't, notice this, he didn't look up and call him dirty, jerk, shameful, reject, cheater, despised, hated. He called him to his true self. He called him to his true self because God knew the whole story, Zacchaeus' life. Jesus saw what he was meant to be, not just what everyone else around saw, that he was created to be an image bearer. There you are, Zacchaeus, and we got some work to do. We got some work to do, Zacchaeus. There are some things in your life that need to change, but I see you, and I see your significance as a human being. Calm down, I'm going to your house today speaking to someone in a way that brings significance. You see, Jesus was showing Zacchaeus and everyone around that he saw him as worthy, that he saw him as someone of importance, deserving of attention, a human created to bear God's image. The way we treat something shows whether it has significance or not, right? The way we treat something shows whether it's significant to us or not. I recently inherited my nanny's wedding china. So for those of you who don't know my grandmother, I was very close to, passed away last summer, and we've been cleaning her house out. A lot of people in my family have been going through everything, and one of the things I got to keep was her wedding china. And let me just tell you, this wedding china is treated very differently than any other dish in my house, okay? I mean, it even gets its own piece of furniture, like a china cabinet. I'm like, y'all didn't think I was a china cabinet girl, but I am. I got a china cabinet now and I have all these dishes on display. It even has a little light you turn on and all of it lights up. I'm very fancy. So I'm gonna be having tea parties at my house now with all this fancy stuff. But listen, you you treat this very differently than I would just the casual dishes that I used to buy at like Target. I got rid of all my stuff because I'm like, I'm fancy now. I'm just gonna live like this. And I... I treat it differently, I talk about it differently, I take pictures of it, I was showing the band early this morning, I'm like, y'all had tea Friday, and I look at this picture in this adorable, my grandma's wedding china, this is adorable. I'm just proud of it, I'm proud of it. The way we treat something shows whether it's significant to us or not, and this goes for people. This goes for people. We can say all day long as Christians, oh, we love people, we love people. But it's shown and made visible if you see them a certain way and the way that you speak to them. If the way you speak about them or to them says otherwise, it's very hard for the watching world to believe that you really do love people. And Jesus models this for us in such a beautiful way. But guess what? Always controversial. People are not happy about what happens. Let's continue in the story. Verse six and seven, it says this. Zacchaeus quickly climbed down and took Jesus to his house in great excitement and joy. But the people, quote unquote, the people, but the people were displeased. He is gone to be the guest of a notorious sinner, they grumbled. It says the people were displeased. Wait, this guy? This guy gets to go have dinner with Jesus? This guy's worthless. Doesn't he know that he's a tax collector? Doesn't he know that he's one of those people? We don't dinner with those people. This group had been following Jesus for a while and and a lot of the people in the crowd were the religious people. Let's just go ahead and say, they were the religious people and they had been following along, they're trying to catch Jesus in something. They're trying to see what he's really about and they just cannot believe that he's doing this. And and it's often the religious people that end up speaking out of both sides of their mouth because in one instance they're in the temple and they're worshiping and they're praising God and in the other sentence they are devaluing other humans. This was true back then, this was true today, this is true for all of us in some ways. James three, eight through nine says this so well about the way we speak in the tongue. But no one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. Woo! Sometimes it curses those who've been made in the image of God. You see, what's coming out of our mouth only reveals what's in our heart. The way we speak to people, the way we talk about people should reflect the significance they have and carry as a human being, even if we don't agree with them. And it doesn't mean we should agree with people on everything, but it does mean that the way we speak can either devalue or dignify them. It can either devalue or dignify them as a image bearer created and designed by God. Jesus calls him by name. He treats him differently, but the crowd doesn't call him by name. If you saw in the text, it actually says he was a notorious sinner. A notorious sinner. Here's the reality. We can't see people as image bearers when we choose to depersonalize them. We can't see people as image bearers when we choose to depersonalize them. We're about to get in the deep water, Are y'all good? Do a little check. We're there, we're there. One of the books I've been reading is called Good and Beautiful and Kind. I would highly recommend it. It's a great great book by Rich Biotis, and it's the second book I've read uh, by him recently. But he says this about this very topic. It's a great chapter on depersonalization. But he says this, depersonalization is an act of desacralization. When we depersonalize, we stop seeing individuals as sacred creations of God. When we depersonalize, we stop seeing individuals as sacred creations creations of God. We can't depersonalize because God is a personal God. God's a personal God. And let me let me show you what I mean. A passage that many of us are probably familiar with, Psalm 139, 13 through 14, it says this. You made all of the delicate inner parts of my body, and you knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous, how Well, I know it. Here is the reality. If this is true for us, it's true for every human being. The ones we like, the ones we don't like, the ones we agree with, the ones we disagree with, the ones we feel like are bearing God's image better than other people, the ones who aren't choosing to live into bearing God's greatness and goodness at all. They were still designed and created by this God and this ruler who's over all things. And we can't depersonalize because this is personal. People are on individual journeys with unique stories, pains, and gifts, and if we believe this, there are serious implications to this truth. Serious implications to this truth. As a church, we believe it's very clear in Scripture that this means all of life. Some people say it this way, from the womb to the tomb. All of life, the beginning and the very ending moments, the beginning moment at conception, life, at the end of someone's life when people end up discarding the elderly, we don't believe that as Christians. We believe care and love and worth until the very last breath is taken. It doesn't mean that we fight for people to get out of the womb and then we don't care about things anymore. It means from the womb to the tomb and taking care and loving people. Now, I recognize that that is a very complicated subject in many different ways. And the best way to care for people in all of these different steps and stages gets very complicated. And we can disagree about all the different policies that would best support all these things, but what we can't disagree on is that scripture actually means all life. It's so clear. And we have to, as Christians, fight for the value of all of life. It's personal because God is a personal God. We depersonalize when we start to group people together as those people, and this is what the religious people did in the times of Jesus, if you read several chapters back. It's always, oh, those people. And we, we find ourselves doing this, I'm guilty of this, we do this, we, those fill in the blank. And generalizing people in groups in some instances are fine, but too often we forget that these are individual humans, the homeless, the refugees, the conservatives, the liberals, the blacks, the whites, the Asians, those terrorists, the unborn, the elderly, the LGBTQAI plus, the list goes on and on and on, but the reality is if we believe this is true, about every human, each and every person a part of these groups is a human being created by God and it is personal. We depersonalize when we live in a world that accepts pornography. Y'all, we're going deep. When we live in a world that accepts pornography because that's just objects on a screen or a magazine depersonalized for someone's own sexual gratification where there's no true human connection the way God's designed it to be. And the pornography industry generates over 12 billion in annual revenue, my goodness. There's a problem in God's good world. We depersonalize when human trafficking is is accepted by certain people across the planet and it's the exploitation of others as property. There's an estimated at any point, I checked these stats yesterday, at any point, 24.9 million victims worldwide at any given time to human trafficking, including forced labor, commercial sex trade, including ages of all kinds of children and adults all backgrounds and nationalities exploited for someone else's profit. Something has gone wrong in God's good world. We depersonalize when we can hear the story about in the 1940s and the Holocaust happened and over six million Jews were systemically murdered because of their race. How did this happen in God's good world? We depersonalize when one race powers over another because they think they have more value than that other race or that other human being. All of this is rooted back in sin. And of course, racism is rooted in sin as well. We depersonalize and we can say to ourselves, how did these things happen in God's good world where he's created all of humanity to be the visible image of the invisible God? It happens when we lose the foundational truth of God's created order and purpose. It happens when we lose the foundational truth of God's created order and purpose for the flourishing of all humanity to bear His image. And this is not in any way, in any way, political or cultural comments, it's purely kingdom convictions. It's purely kingdom convictions that we get from the scripture And this should be our cue for how we navigate all these really difficult issues. C.S. Lewis is known for saying this in one of his books. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. You see, depersonalization disconnects us to actual people. And part of what's happening in this crowd is Zacchaeus is one of those people. Yet Jesus breaks the mold right there in front of them, in front of the religious people, in front of the people who knew him, in front of the people who didn't know him, and he changes the situation. Meanwhile, all this grumbling is going on in the crowd. Something incredible is happening at Zacchaeus' house. Y'all think I forgot about Zacchaeus. I didn't. I just had to go on a little tangent. What happened with Zacchaeus? Verse eight, it says this. Meanwhile, Zacchaeus stood before the Lord and said, "'I will give half of my wealth to the poor, Lord, "'and if I have cheated people on their taxes, "'I will give them back four times as much.'" Jesus responded, salvation has come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham, for the son of man came to seek and save those who were lost. Now, we don't have all the details of what actually happened at Zacchaeus' house, do we? It doesn't tell us in the song, it doesn't tell us in the rest of the passage. All we know, all we know is something happened and this encounter, That Zacchaeus had with Jesus changed him. Something had to happen. It's not like they went back and kicked back at the house and just enjoyed things. Something had to happen. He wasn't afraid to confront Zacchaeus in the things that he was doing to hurt other people. And we wouldn't want Jesus to ignore those things. It was hurting other people. It was hurting other image bearers. But the reality is something happened and he changed and it says right there, he was standing before Jesus and he made things right and he would even go above and beyond to fix the wrong that he had done. And Jesus says, salvation has come to you in your house. Salvation has come to you in your house. You see, a part of seeing people as the image bearers of God is believing in someone in a way that invites salvation believing in someone in a way that invites salvation for them. Jesus saw the potential that was there, not just the problems. It's not that Jesus was accepting or approving of his lifestyle and his choices and what he was doing to hurt others, no. But he believed that his story could change. And that is the difference. He believed that his story could change. And the loving and the gracious and the kind thing to do is to call people into the fullness and the beauty of what it means to be fully human and to reveal God's image in our daily life. That's the loving and the kind thing to do. That's salvation becoming full and whole. But we have to believe that's actually possible for everyone not just the people I think it's okay for. We have to actually believe that that is possible for everyone and this all started because Jesus saw Zacchaeus. Jesus saw him. Jesus saw Zacchaeus. The famous sculptor Michelangelo said some really powerful things about being a sculptor, and in fact, uh, I think in 2005, I went on a study tour where I was able to be in Italy, and I I went, and I actually got to see the David in person, which is one of his most famous works, this amazing piece of art, and Michelangelo has said things about his artwork um, in all different instances, but here's a couple things he said that I think are so powerful. I don't want to miss this. He says this, every block of stone has a statue inside it. And it's the task of the sculptor to discover it. I saw the angel in the marble and I carved until I set him free. I saw the angel in the marble and I carved until I set him free. You see, for Michelangelo, the image was already there. He was just the vessel to bring it forth just as God had originally intended it, to reveal the image that was already there. And maybe as he worked on the David, he was able to see it and he finally says, oh, there you are, David, there you are. I've seen you all along, I just had to chisel some things out of the way to bring forth this image for the world. And the chiseling away of things is the grace of God, amen. It's the grace of God. Not always easy, not always something that feels good in the moment, but it's the grace of God. And so for us this morning, we have to ask ourselves the questions as Christians, do we really believe that salvation is ultimately a setting someone free? I do. That salvation is ultimately about a setting free for someone. And maybe for some of you today, you can't think about being this expression of love to others so that you can see people well because you feel like you're not seen. Maybe you feel like Zacchaeus this morning and I'm here to remind you that God sees you for the individual that you are, for the journey that you're on, for the brokenness, for the hard season, for all the things, and then God is inviting you to experience his salvation and to fully be invited into wholeness, what he's created you to be along as an image bearer of God, his expression to the watching world. Who, church, do we need to see? Who in your life do you need to see this week? Who do you need to speak to with significance? Who do you need to connect with? because you truly believe that they can experience the freedom and salvation that God offers. As we close this morning, I want us just to have a posture of just surrender before the Lord. And so I wanted to close a little different. I wanted us to sing an old hymn that's familiar to probably pretty much anyone, Amazing Grace. It's the kind of song that you can sing it in rooms filled uh, with people who are church people or not, and people can just sing it because it's so well-known all across the earth and it reminds us of the grace of God. And so I invite you to stay seated. Let's just sing these words together and be reminded of the grace of God that we can experience
1: in Him. Sing Amazing Grace. that saved a wretch like me. Right.
0: saw you? Aren't you glad that God saw you right where you were? Right in the middle of your struggle and your story, God saw you and saw the potential that you could be to live exactly how He's created and designed you to be. And we're all still in that process, right? No one's got this right. We're all Uh, a piece of his handiwork and he's still chiseling away in so many ways for all of us, but may we be the kind of people to express that love and grace to all people, to all individuals and know that salvation is available and ready for everyone. And they need to know that love and grace through how we as Christians in the church express that to them, amen.